Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about the Beatles and the paranormal. But first, as always, we have shout-outs. Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac. We have shout-outs going out to the following. And Stephen, Jane, Jane Ann, Jennifer, Heather G, Zuzus, What's It, Paula, Rick, Nico, Cher in the Mouse, Paul, Mark Tortuga, Hannah Bood, Mike from Jersey, Jay Bizzle, Andy, Tracy, Virginia, Tony, Jason, Vicky, Crow, Clay, Buzz, Lobita Works, Glacier Maine, Isabel, Jen, Jen, Stacy, Amber, Sandy, Kelly, Joe, Menace the Beast, Kick-Ass Magic Robot webcomic, which you really should check out, Kick-Ass Magic Robot webcomic. It is very cool. Sandy Page, Kosh, Sean, Andrew, Scott, A, Andrea, Melody, Vicky, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Roger, Alicia, Becca, Jake, and the Beasties. Elizabeth, Voidtech, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Ricardo, Ian, Alexander, George, Seth, Zozo the Demon. <laughs> Hayden, Cindy, Ashley, Carrie, Robin, Will, Lauren, Russell, Russell, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, Stacy, Jerry, Lindsay, Hahn, Megan, Jeff T, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, the Lawrence Strawn, Veronica, Autumn, J. Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jade, Nanashi, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Dan, Laura Pitts, and GamerFan. With two special shout-outs, as always, to Joe Teague and to Stitch. All right, I want to keep this thing going here. I'm, it's, it's starting to really rain outside, so I want to get as much done as I can before you guys can't hear me over the rain. So let's go right on into Paranormal News. Yes, indeed it is. The biggest, big, big story this week has got to be the, the details of the Pentagon's um, UFO report. It was released by the U.S. government. Boy, howdy. All righty, so the Office of the Director of National Intelligence released a report, a new report about UFO sightings in the United States. The U.S. government received over 350 UFO sightings since March 2021. Half of them remain unexplained. I'm just going to go through briefly the headlines for these because it is just insane how many news articles, you know, were written about it. The Pentagon got hundreds of new reports of UFOs in 2022, a government report says. Um, within the batch of sightings, the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence say they're focusing on some 171 cases, including some in which objects appear to have demonstrated unusual flight characteristics or performance capabilities and require further analysis. Let's see, spies, spy agencies report hundreds more UFO sightings since 2021. 
Uh, let's. I mean, you you keep going. If you type in the UFO in in the news alone, it's just article after article after article. If my computer would stop freezing up, that would be fantastic. Reports rise to 510, not aliens, but still a threat to U.S. UFO report includes hundreds more sightings. Pentagon's released its long-awaited 2022 UFO report. Never mind, says the the U.S. government, UFO hunters. Spy agencies report hundreds more sightings. New UFO report shows hundreds more incidents than previously thought. Report categorizes many UFO sightings as drones, trash, or birds. All from a day ago. It is a big report that does absolutely nothing. In my opinion, it's a total bullshit report. They, they know that they have 171 cases that do not fit drones or birds or other, whatever the other trash, airborne trash bullshit is in there. And they go, well, we don't know what it is. And that's the end of the report. No, no, this whole point of this report is supposed to be to get us to the bottom of this. They are going to spend the money and spend the time and tell the American people or tell the people of the world, really, what is happening with UFOs. And that is not what is happening with, with these reports. These reports, if anything, are being more and more vague every report. It's not too shocking, but it is. it, it does really kind of bum me out because this was supposed to be disclosure. This was supposed to be it. They've determined that the world can handle... If the governments come out and say, yep, there are UFOs, yep, they're aliens, yep, they are visiting us, the world can handle it. It's not going to crumble like it would have in the 50s or the 40s or even the 60s because of the religious implications. No, we're supposed to be, and I put supposed to be in big enough quotes, we're supposed to be intelligent enough to be able to handle the truth, yet every article that comes out from these reports, every update that comes out from these reports is more and more bullshit, sadly. All right, this next story in uh, Paranormal News answers the age-old question, are there Bigfoot on the moon? And I know you're immediately going, no, of course not. That's fucking dumb. Well, you're not wrong, but here's the news story. One small step for man, one giant step for Bigfoot, Fremont artist Sasquatch sculpture to be archived on the moon. That's right. Dan, oh, I'm sorry, Dan, Dan Chun's, Chudzinski, Chudzinski's sculpture titled Evasive Species will be archived on microfilm in a time capsule and sent to the moon as part of the Lunar Codex Project. That is cool. He's a Northwest Ohio artist and sculptor. He began his larger-than-life rendition of the classic monster, well, he's not really a monster, uh, Bigfoot during COVID-19 lockdown in 2020. When the Norman Rockwell Museum in Massachusetts tasked him with creating the art piece for an exhibit, the challenge was, can I make, can I do something in high resolution, hyper realistic detail that when you approach it in a gallery, it still makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Initially, he wanted to create a 10 foot tall Sasquatch sculpture, but later settled on just creating the, the creature's busts, which it's, it's an incredible looking thing. You got to look it up. I'm going to put it on the, um, the Facebook fan page as well, but I mean, it is absolutely amazing work really is. It won a top honor at the 16th International Art Renewal Center Salon Competition. And uh, the photograph is a record. It carries information. It carries memories. So to have one of those on the moon, who knows who's going to see it in subsequent decades, years, or even centuries. Very cool. But make sure you clearly put it in as many languages as you can. Like, this isn't real. This was a sculpture. Don't worry if you come down to Earth. There's not going to be some evil-looking, because it really is an evil-looking Sasquatch ready to rip your face off. 
but very cool. So Sasquatch on the moon, it's about time. They do say, I will say though, that they do say that the scientists say that there probably are dinosaur bones on the moon from when the, um, the meteorite hit and, you know, kind of wiped out the dinosaurs. All of that impact, you know, from the impact crater would have went up in and possibly landed on the moon. So there's a good chance there's dinosaur bones on the moon. So that's cool. Already up next in paranormal news, another Olympic Sasquatch captured on foot on uh, captured on camera along Ho River. Captured on camera, not on footprint. Another Olympic Sasquatch captured on camera along Ho River, H O H River. Let's see. It was taken about a year and a half ago, but it was just been released. He was fishing and it was on the other side of the river. I myself have seen it, also have heard it talking and howling. Had a tree knock in October this year after shooting my 1022. I knocked back, then felt it best to leave. Taking sound, talking sounds like gibberish or better explanation of water running over a culvert. As soon as I made noise, it stopped. I just rolled a dough in a can. I just rolled a dough in a can? What the hell does that mean? I just rolled a dough in a can. I don't know. I don't care. But I want to see this actual video. So let's click play. I'll post it to an RMSO media site by a gentleman named Ron. Okay. He states, Thank you, Ron. a friend sent this to me from the Ho River in the peninsula of Washington. Uh-huh. I've had several encounters myself, including a sighting crossing the road in Ashford, Washington. RMSO asks, Hi, Ron. Hi, Ron. Do you know when this photo was taken? What is your friend's story behind obtaining this photo? It's supposed to be a video. Photo? It's only a Ron photo? Ron continues. It was taking over a year oh, ago. Well, he was fishing, right, and it was on. on the other side of yeah, the Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't need to have you do that if it's just a photo. All right, let me look at the photo. You know what it looks like to me? And I'm fairly confident that's exactly what it'll turn out to be. If you look up Bigfoot statue or Bigfoot garden statue, there's only one thing that comes up. And I'm going to do it right now while I'm talking. Bigfoot garden statue. Well, I mean, there might be more than one thing, but the big thing is the, is the yeah, it's exactly it. So the Bigfoot garden statue that you can buy on like 19 different places that's, that's what this photo is. That's 100% what this photo is. I'm not even doubting that's what this photo is. So, Ron, you're a liar, and it's bullshit. And two, you couldn't do better than the Bigfoot garden statue? Nope, I'm calling bullshit on that one. In that case, let's move on to video. Flying saucer photographed over erupting volcano in Mexico? Interesting. They say that an intriguing image of an erupting volcano in Mexico shows what appears to be a UFO hovering over the scene. All right, let's watch this one, and it better not be just a, a photo of a Bigfoot garden statue. Es un objeto volador no identificado, o sea, un ovni. Right. En la imagen se puede ver el volcán Popocatépetl so far, a un lado. Just a photo. La luna que luce muy brillante y just... Okay. Why do you have to do videos of just a photo? Just post the damn photo. It's a blurry bird. Dumb. Moving on. All right, that about does it for Paranormal News. Let's get right on into this cuckoo-cajoo. We are back. On this edition, I wanted to talk about my other favorite band. The band that I've loved since as far back as I can remember. And that is God's Honest Truth. I, as far back as I can remember, the Beatles have been part of my life. Now, I know that everybody 
or not or most everybody because I know I'm going to get a bunch of people go, "Well, I don't think they're my favorite band." But I know that most people say that the Beatles are their favorite band. And for good reason. They changed rock and roll. Absolutely incredible. What they did in the short time they were together was absolutely amazing. It go watch that Beatles get back thing from uh, on Disney Plus. It was absolutely incredible. Honestly, the Beatles and They Might Be Giants, as you all know, are truly my favorite bands. Now, sadly, for the They Might Be Giants side of things, I asked John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants if he believed in cryptids or the paranormal. This was a while ago, like 2018. He was doing a Facebook, like, ask me anything kind of thing. So I asked him that, and he said, not really. So... I doubt there's going to be a They Might Be Giants follow-up to this episode, so let's just focus on the members of the Beatles then and the paranormal incidents that they've either talked about, been associated with, or revolve around them or their music. Now, this was a very hard episode for me to do because I wanted to do it chronologically, and I think, big think, I did it chronologically. But if I do kind of bounce around the Beatles timeline just a bit, just just go with it is what I'm saying. Like, I think I did it. So let's just start back. Let's go back to the, the very, very beginning of the Beatles. To the Cavern Club, where arguably the Beatles came to be. And if you don't know what the Cavern Club is, look, I can't do a whole episode on like Beatles history. There's a billion podcasts that do that, but just just go with me. The beginning of the Beatles, there's a place called the Cavern Club. Now, let me just preface this that the Cavern, Cavern Club stories, um, <laughs> they, they come with a huge, huge grain of salt. Not just one, multiple huge grains of salt. There is no proof whatsoever that these stories are true, but they do seem to have all been told for a very long time, so they're not like modern creepypasta, but... Since they are basically just kind of ghost stories that have been told and told and told again. Grain of salt it. It's, it's part of the Beatles past, so let's just start at the Cavern Club. We're going to start with Tom Sleeman's Tales. He was the manager of the Cavern Club during the 1950s. And he claimed that the ladies' toilets were haunted by a ghost. Not only that, but that guests have reported sightings of the devil himself in the Cavern Club. That's right. Um, there's some theories. <clears throat> I don't buy into it all, but there are some theories that the Cavern Club was built upon an underground temple. Why? No idea. I went down that rabbit hole as far as I could, trying to find an inkling of source of this and couldn't find anything. Now, there is something that they did find when they redid the Cavern Club, but it was just a vault. I'll talk, I'll talk about that briefly in just a little bit, but there was nothing about an underground temple, nothing that showed me that there is anything to do with devil worship ever in the history of the Cavern Club. But it also goes on to say that Matthew Street is named after a Victorian merchant, Matthew Pluckington, who again, legend has it, was said to have been accustomed to devil worship to make business deals happen. Cool, all right. So, the late 1950s, Cavern Club, by that time, at that time, it was still a jazz club. And um, there were three club goers. Here's, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read the story. I'm just going to read the ghost story as it appears on thousands of websites. 
Three club go- club goers called Johnny, Tony, and Peter, who stayed late into the early hours at the Cavern Club with their girlfriends. Now, this group of friends were sitting there. They were talking about everything from politics to religion. But then they started talking about the occult. Hold on. Where is it? That's right. The 50s. They're talking about the occult. Rita, no idea who Rita is because they said there were only three Oh, with their girlfriends. I get it. So Johnny, Tony, and Peter with their girlfriends. One of the girlfriends, Rita, pointed out that the Cavern Club's toilets were supposedly haunted. Peter said, nah, it's just a gimmick. It's just a publicity trick, whatever. Overhearing one of Peter's remarks, the management uh, or one of the staff said that the ghost had been seen recently freaking them all out. So they're all talking ghost stories and is the Cavern Club haunted and spooky? We're talking about a cult. So... They decide to do a quote-unquote torch-lit seance. Tony, it said, lit up a cigarette, sat at another table. He was like, I'm not, I'm not fucking around with the dark stuff. Nope, screw you guys. But around the table, Johnny said, how they know this, I have no idea because it was in the 50s and there was no one like writing everything he said down. But the ghost story says that Johnny says, oh, Lord of darkness, I invite you into the cavern. Give us a sign so we may believe. They said that soon after, a tall shadow appeared in the darkened room and a man dressed in black showed up, just kind of emerged out of nowhere. Now, it said that the girls weren't afraid of the man because he was he had dark eyes, a very attractive face, you know, sexy man, sexy devil man. Tony, who was away from the group, said that he had noticed the man appear from the toilets and was like, nope, that dude's evil. He just came out of the girls' toilets, girls' haunted toilets. What's he doing in there? Nope, no thank you. So they go on, the story goes on to say that the man said that his name was Lucifer. But of course it was. Scaring Rita. The man declared, if you believe in God, you must believe in me too. Unless you're an atheist, of course. Whoever was writing everything down, good on you. Because you got every, like, who got scared, when it happened, what they said. Um, Peter was asked to give the devil his soul. Peter said, all right, take it then. Which, uh, let me, if you take one thing away from this episode... If a, a, a guy with black eyes comes out of a haunted girl's toilet at a club, especially a jazz club, and says, give me your soul, you don't just go, all right, take it then. You know, get something for it. Get a fiddle of gold at least. So the uh, figure reached out, clutched the air. The torch began to fade, and a cavern, cl- cavern club was filled with darkness. So Tony goes, nope, enough of this crap, and banishes Lucifer in the name of Jesus Christ. However, a voice whispered, I'll be back for you one day, and your God won't be able to save you. The lights came back on. Peter was slumped on the table, seemingly drunk. Upon uh, returning home, this this is the best part of this. Upon returning home to Smithdown Lane, the group noticed that Peter wasn't breathing. Okay, so the lights come back on. Devil guy's gone. And you go, well, let's get the fuck out of here. Peter gave his soul away to that devil dude that came out of the haunted girl's toilet. Let's go. And what, they just like um, weakened at Bernie's Peter all the way home? It wasn't until they were home they went, hey, we should probably, oh, God, Peter's not breathing here. Holy shit, he's dead. So, yeah, they they call whatever 999 or 0118. What is it? 0118-997842, whatever that is, the, the, the thing that you have to call in England to get, you know, paramedics to help you. They call that. Paramedics show up and they go, yeah, he's dead. They took him to a royal hospital, declared dead. 
Even though his body was found fit and well, the only conclusion was that he died of natural causes. Of course, the group of friends believed the sinister seance was the cause of it all. Yeah. So, I don't buy any of that ghost story bullshit part with the devil, but there are a lot, and I mean a lot of stories, about the women's bathroom at the Cavern Club being haunted by a ghost. So that part, all right, cool. I'll say possibility on that one. And then that thing I was talking about earlier, there was a waterlogged vault, 120 feet long, 70 feet wide, about nine feet in depth, that was discovered directly beneath the stage where the Beatles had played at the Cavern Club when it was excavated in 1982. The purpose of this vault has never been determined. That's weird. That's really weird. I don't know what to think of that. Then, another ghost story grain of salt one that I don't really understand why they keep talking about JFK, but I'm just going to read it to you again. Another ghostly tale happened in November 1963, possibly just before the day JFK was assassinated. That's when a promoter and a businessman were at the Cavern Club. His name was Jimmy Tarbuck. He had done a stand-up comedy routine there. He had been supported by a group known as Vic and the Spider-Men. Sometime after the show, several people saw a green glowing orb appear, and a businessman who had been sitting in the corner sipping a Coca-Cola saw a bizarre-looking figure in the green glow. In the green glow. Now, he described her as an outlandishly dressed girl with pink hair, a type of miniskirt, black stockings, and workman's boots. So hot is what it sounds like to me. Her midriff was visible because she was wearing a revealing crop top, and her bare lower back was adorned with some sort of oriental tattoo. Uh, All right. So this young girl had her hands clasped together and her eyes were closed if she was in prayer. A promoter turned when the the businessman cried out to him, and he got the closest view of the girl in the green light. He saw that she had a ring in her nose and was possibly a piercing in her bottom lip. A third person was taken, was also taken, what? A third person, what was taken to be a ghost. Then about 10 seconds later, after she appeared, the girl and the green luminescence vanished into thin air. That's the story. I have more questions than answers because of this story. One, why did you have to bring up JFK at all in this story? It's not like he appeared with this girl. So that's dumb. Two, you guys have it a you had a great look at this girl that came out of a green orb for a total of 10 seconds, but you can tell me the color of her hair, what she was wearing, what color was her outfit, um, what type of mini skirt, black stockings, workman's boots, uh, she had a tattoo on her lower back, she had a tramp stamp basically. She had um a ring in her nose. Piercing in her bottom lip, that's a lot of details for 10 seconds. If someone shows up in 10, for 10 seconds right now at my door, they just like knock on the door, I open it up, and they go, count to 10, and I count to 10, and then they close the door for me. And you said, all right, what would that person look like? I could give you the generals, but this kind of specificity, there we go. This kind of specific. oh, fuck you, you know what I'm saying? That's some bullshit is what I'm saying. All right, is that about does it for the Cavern Club? Weird. Don't know if I really believe the ghost stories, but um, okay. But from there, let's go to 1966. That's when Cynthia Lennon, who was John Lennon's first wife, in case you didn't know, when he and her moved into a former convent for convent for six weeks. It was a Spanish villa called the Santa Isiel in Almeria. Almeria? Sure, whatever. 
Uh, basically, they were living there while John filmed the movie How I Won the War. Now, they both said that they thought that this villa was haunted. They said that lights would keep going off, objects would move mysteriously, and we all felt a strange presence. We planned a party to cheer the place up, but halfway through the evening, the electricity was cut off and a huge storm blew up. Now, Ringo Starr also stayed at the villa with the Lennons while John was filming. And they also said uh, you could expect, or he said, <clears throat> you would expect all kinds of heroes with swords to come swinging around the corner on a chandelier. What a great place for parties. I was convinced beyond all doubt that the villa housed many beautiful spirits. Now, he actually wrote about it. Ringo actually wrote about this in his autobiography. He also mentioned that a party hosted by the Lennons for the actors and crews of the film, crew members of the film, where they sang to the ghosts because that's how hard they believed that the mansion was haunted. Alrighty, from there, let's go to 1967 to a song called Penny Lane. Now, hopefully, you know the song Penny Lane. If you don't, I'm not singing it because I'm immediately going to get sued by like a billion people because it's the Beatles, but there's a song Penny Lane. It was written about a real location. And, um, you know, go and listen to it if you really need to. They talk about the people that you see on Penny Lane, basically. You got yourself a banker, a fireman, a pretty nurse. Just people that you see on Penny Lane. But they forgot about one person on Penny Lane, a poltergeist. That's right. There's actually a poltergeist that has been seen on Penny Lane starting back in 1890. Something that I knew nothing about and was really intrigued about. It is insanely cool. So like like I said, the street, Penny Lane, it's named after the Liverpool merchant, slave ship owner, anti-abolitionist, all-around dickhole, James Penny. That's what Penny Lane's named after. I didn't know that either. Then, in 1890, residents reported seeing a white and blue glowing orb float its way down to Penny Lane. Not just once either, but often. Word actually got out, and if anything went wrong on Penny Lane, the poltergeist was to blame. For example, when horses couldn't carry their loads, you got yourself a Penny Lane poltergeist. That's right, an open carriage heading for Elm Hall shuddered, and as much as the horses tried, they could not pull the Lando up Penny Lane for a full half hour. The people there said that the wheels of the carriage seemed locked. And for 30 minutes, even with the horses pulling all their might, they couldn't get the carriage to move. And then instantly, it just started rolling like everything was fine again. Or, when the beer went strangely sour, you got yourself a Penny Lane poltergeist. All right, enough of that before some Jeff Dunham puppet serves me papers. Look, basically what I'm saying is anything that happened in the 1890s, 19, early 1900s on Penny Lane, they blamed this poltergeist. And a lot of weird things kept happening again and again and again. Then we move forward, still on Penny Lane, to the 1930s, and that's when the paranormal activity was mainly focused on one location. Number 44. That's where residents and neighbors reported hearing loud thumps and floorboards would shake violently. It got so bad that the family fled from the house. The family that lived there actually just bolted out one night and left, which, by the way is the correct thing to do if you've got an insanely haunted house that's scaring the shit out of you so badly where the floorboards would shake violently, just, just leave. There's got to be other places. Leave your shit behind and just go. 
Fun fact, I looked into it. I wanted to see what number 44 was now. It's a place that rents apartments. Unfortunately, they have not gotten back to my email if the place is still haunted or not. So if I hear from them, I'll update you on a future episode. From there, though, we go to World War II, still in Penny Lane. The poltergeist fell quiet. My guess is because people had bigger things to worry about than orbs and banging noises that, were, that you know, like were happening in Penny Lane. There was like bombing and shit going on. But in 1955, the poltergeist, I'll just say, came back with a vengeance. It was no longer just an orb. Now... It was a ghost blonde girl. I guess I shouldn't say came back with a vengeance because she really wasn't doing too much, but you'll, you'll hear. This, this ghost blonde girl was always seen in the upper floor of, yep, you guessed it, number 44 Penny Lane brushing her hair. So not, not came back with a vengeance. That was mean. She just came back and everybody's like, holy shit, ghost girl. Here's a grain of salt story about her. In 1955, the house had been rebuilt from the damage it took in World War II and was the premises of William G. Penny, greengrocer, and as far as anyone or anyone knew or he knew, there was no blonde girl living at the address. Mrs. Hale was returning from Timothy White's chemist at 41 Penny Lane when she said she saw a girl about 13 at upstairs window of number 44 across the road combing her long blonde hair. Seconds later, the girl vanishes. Days later, at Bob Tuna's Butcher's Shop, Mrs. Edith McKay was buying corned beef when her sister-in-law rushed in and said a crowd of people were outside Crow's Baker Shop. The two women went across Penny Lane to see what the matter was and saw that everyone was looking up at, yep, number 44, upstairs, a girl with long blonde hair was staring out the window of the baker shop. Once again, the ghost girl vanishes into thin air in front of dozens of onlookers, and it just keeps going. That night, something walked heavily across the slate roofs of Penny Lane, startling the people that lived in all of those little places. The unknown walker stopped on the roof of George Long's, L-E-O-N-G, Long's laundry at number 117 and vanished with a loud bang. Then the poltergeist goes quiet until January of 1971. At this time, number 44 was a printing shop called Zerolith. And when printers Shackman and Hampton came into work one morning, there was a bunch of angry neighbors that were complaining about the loud machinery that had been left on all night long. So the guys were like really confused because they didn't leave anything on. They checked all the machines. All the machines were off. And they went, I don't know what you're talking about and kind of went about their business. But it happened a few more times. That's when they knew something was going on. So what they did was, they stayed the night at the print shop. They said that night they heard walking and banging upstairs. Not banging, not like that kind of banging pervs. I mean, like, you know, things banging around. Um, then, you guessed it, ghost blonde girl was seen again in broad daylight a few times at 44 Penny Lane. After a few months, it goes quiet again. So it seems to me like we have a 16-year in interval for the paranormal activity. But here's the thing. I couldn't find any records of paranormal activity in 1971, 87, 2003, 2019. So is she gone for good or is people just not, you know, are people just not freaked out about seeing some blonde girl up in a window combing her hair? My guess it's the latter. Because if I was walking down Penny Lane, which I would like to, that sounds fucking cool. I want to go down Penny Lane. Now look, I want to go to Abbey Road, all the places the Beatles were at. 
very badly. But until I win the lotto, I'm not doing that. But if I was walking down Penny Lane and I looked up and just saw some 13-year-old combing her hair, I wouldn't be like, oh, everybody come look. I'd be like, oh, there's a 13-year-old girl combing her hair. That's creepy, Kurt. Let's keep walking. So from here, let's go to January 1970. All right, the Beatles were technically still together. So this is one of the last stories from when they were a foursome, when they were a group, when they were the Beatles. But on January 1970, George Harrison bought Friar Park, which is a 35-acre Victorian neo-Gothic mansion in Henley-on-the-Thames, England. It was built in 1889. He bought it for $140,000, and the previous owners were nuns. So Friar Park not surprisingly for this episode, was also said to be very haunted. I could find a couple of stories that I could really kind of say like, okay, this is probably true. The first one, definitely. Terry Doran, who was George's assistant, had an encounter one night. He like bursts into the kitchen, screaming to everyone in the kitchen, I saw a fucking ghost. He said he was in the minstrel's gallery and stumbled upon a man standing there. So he asked the man like, hey, who are you? How'd you get in here? All that crap. And the man just, boop, vanishes. Then, as I told you, he freaks out and goes in the kitchen and tells everybody. Now, George is rumored. I'm going to put rumored because, well, I'll just tell you it. George is rumored to have seen Sir Frank, who owned the mansion in the early 1900s. But the reason I say rumored is I can't find any place that he is talking about it firsthand. There are tons of sites, like second and third hand, about George, who told this person, who told that person, that kind of a thing. But I wanted to hear it from George himself, and I couldn't find anything. So George also supposedly saw the ghost of Sir Frank, who, like I just said, owned the mansion in the early 1900s. All right, moving on to 1973. Yes, I know, sadly, the Beatles were broken up by 73, but let's focus on the separate Beatles stories, and let's go to New York. That's when, on the night of Friday 23rd, Friday, August 23rd, that's the correct way of saying it, Friday, August 23rd, 1974, John Lennon and his partner, May Pang. That's right. He was a he was broken up from Yoko for a bit. With Yoko's permission, I might add. He was doing his last weekend. He had a girlfriend. Her name was May Pang. And what did they see? Nope, not a ghost, but a freaking UFO. And yes, the hardcore paramaniacs are shouting out, Kurt, you've already talked about this. You're right. I did. I briefly told this story a long time ago about celebrities and UFOs. But here is a more, very well, more in-depth, whatever word I'm trying to say there, look at this UFO sighting because it is a very cool story. All right, so uh, John Lennon and Maypang were living at their apartment at Penthouse Tower B or the Southgate Complex at 434 East 52nd Street in New York, New York, which... Fun fact is where the famous John Lennon wearing the New York City t-shirt, like if you if you just Google John Lennon New York City shirt, you're going to see him in a cool white t-shirt, black ring collar that says New York City. I absolutely love the shirt. I actually have one somewhere. But um, this is where that shirt or that photo of him wearing that shirt was photographed at. It was at this apartment, 434 East 52nd Street. It just sold in like 2020. Um I forget how much was that. It wasn't too much. I mean, it's a lot more than I can ever afford, but it was like $6 million or something like that. And it's an absolutely gorgeous apartment. The views were absolutely incredible. So I can see why John was out on the balcony just enjoying the view. But 
John Lennon and May Pang moved into the Sutton Place apartment in early July of 1974. He was working on walls and bridges at the, at the record plant in New York. Why am I telling you this? Well, because John Lennon actually included the following words on the opening page of the album's lyrics booklet. On the 23rd of August, 1974, at 9 o'clock, I saw a UFO. That is from John himself in the Walls and Bridges lyrics booklet. Now, John said that he was out on his balcony, completely sober, when he saw a silent moving UFO. Upon seeing the UFO, John screams for May Pang, who was in the shower. Now, here's her account of it. There's going to be a lot of, like, accounts of this. So here's the first one from May Pang. She said, I just stepped out of the shower one Friday night towards the end of August when I heard John said, Fung Yi, come here. In a minute, I called back. Now, Fung Yi, now, he screamed. He sound panic-stricken. So I ran into the living room, and I could see him standing naked on the terrace, and I ran out and stood beside him. What's the matter, I asked. Look up there, he pointed to the sky. Tell me what you see. I'm not going to do a John Lennon impression. I looked up, and I couldn't believe my eyes. There was a saucer-shaped object surrounded by blinding white lights gliding through the sky. I was convinced it was a UFO. I can't believe it, I said. You're seeing exactly what I see. I can't believe it, she repeated. I was astonished, then I began to laugh. What are you laughing at, John said. Suppose it's looking at us. Maybe they think that everyone who lives on the east side wanders around naked on their terrace on Friday evenings. We look like Adam and Eve. She goes on to say that they watched the object gliding through the sky, then went inside, got our telescope, and studied it some more. I almost didn't call you, John said. I was afraid you wouldn't believe me. I thought you'd say, what is John on? I didn't think anyone would believe me. It was shaped like a flattened cone, and on top was a large, brilliant red light, not pulsating as any of the aircraft we see heading for a landing at New York or Newark Airport. When it came a little closer, we could make out a row of circle white lights that ran around the, out, ran around the entire rim of the craft. These were also flashing on and off. There were so many lights, so many of these lights, that it was dazzling to the mind. We went to the phone and called Harry, Harold Cider, or Cedar, and Elliot Mintz to tell them about the UFO. Uh, Harold was skeptical. Elliot, of course, was not. John spoke to Bob Groon, a photographer who did a lot of work for him, and asked Groon to come over and get on the phone to find out if anyone had seen um, the UFO. So Bob Groon made a few calls and learned that there had been reports made both to the local police station as well as to the newspapers. We couldn't stop talking about the UFO. I never believed this stuff before. Now I believe. Now I've seen it, and I do believe it. It was real enough, said John. When Yoko called, because, again, they were still in communication, John told her about the UFO. What did she say, I asked when, she got, when he got off the phone. John said she was upset because she hadn't seen it. Yoko actually called back two or three times to complain about being left out. In bed that night, we continued to talk about it. Just before he fell asleep, John said softly, I wish it had taken us both away. Here's another interview with her. Uh, the famous UFO incident men mentioned in the liner notes of Wall and Bridges. Do you believe it was an extraterrestrial object or might there be a rational explanation for it? The uh, interviewer said, she said, I know what I saw. And the rational explanation is it was a UFO. There's UFOs over New York as the song goes. And I saw another one in the early eighties. And I know other people did too. Did nobody else in New York see it? It seems astonishing to think that an unidentified flying object going down East 52nd Street could remain unseen by anyone else. She says, yes, that event had about 400 reported sightings, I believe. 
The interviewer asked, did John really call out to the UFO in hopes it might take him away? She says he didn't call out to it. He said later he wished it had taken with us, taken us with it. However, I doubt we'd have been that enthusiastic to go along had the opportunity actually presented itself. Uh, she said that she attempted to photograph the object, but the images came out blank when the film was developed. I was, she said, I was so freaked out about it. John was just ta- taking it all in. We're not far from this thing. I remember running in trying to get my camera because I had, I was testing out some surveillance film at the time. It was moving slowly. At times it would just sort of hover. There was no noise. I could hear the streets below, but the thing was directly above my head, had no noise, nothing. We watched it go sideways around the corner. It kept going up and up further into the sky, and it hovered over the waterside towers on 23rd Street. It sat there for a good few minutes, and it started to move, and he thought it was heading towards Brooklyn. When it got to the bridge down there, I think it was probably the Williamsburg Bridge, it just sort of, it just sort of stayed there for a second, and then I watched it go straight up, and it was gone. John was calm, and I was a lunatic. We said, who should we call? I think we called Elliot Mintz first. The first thing John said after being told, after told him the story was, could I speak to May? Did May see this? And then we called Bob Groon, and he made a couple of calls and took my film. On my roll of film, you could see the sprockets were flared where the film had gone through. My whole roll of film, everything I had on it, looked like it was overexposed. It was completely blank. John made a sketch of it. He wanted to put it down, so he grabbed it, uh, grabbed a pen, and he took 8 by 10 envelope, and he just drew the, what he thought he saw. My God, if I won the lotto, I would find that John Lennon drawing of a UFO, and I would buy that in a heartbeat. So for the, so that's the May Pang interviews about it. Now, John did do an interview about it, but he interviewed himself. It was for the November 1974 issue of Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine. Now, the piece was called Interview slash Interview with by, with by on John Lennon and or Dr. Winston O'Boogie, which is what John called himself. And John had a flair. If you've never read John Lennon's, um, any of his books um, or poems, he has a flair for being really kind of wacky with his wording. But it says, um, if you look too closely at the wonderful walls and bridges out now album package, you'll notice a little note notice saying, I saw a UFO. Why don't you ask me about that? Then John said to John, oh, I hadn't noticed. Did you really? Were you drunk? High? Having a primal? John No, actually, I was very straight. I was lying naked on my bed when I had this urge. John, the other John, don't we all? John, so I went to the window, just dreaming about my, dreaming around in my usual poetic frame of mind. To cut a long story short here, as I turned my head, hovering over the next building, no more than 100 feet away was this thing, with ordinary electric light bulbs flashing on and off around the bottom, one non-blinking red light on the top. What the Nixon is that, I says to myself, for no one else was there. Is it a helicopter? No, it makes no noise. Ah, then it must be a balloon, frantically trying to rationalize it in my all-too-human way. But no, balloons don't look like that, nor do they fly so low. Yes, folks, it was flying, very slow, about 30 miles per hour. I repeat, below most rooftops. Higher than the old building, lower than the new. All the time it was there, I never took my eyes off of it, but I did scream to a friend who was in the other room, come and look at this, etc., etc. My friend came running and bore witness with me. Nobody else was around. We tried to take pictures. Shit on my Polaroid, it was a bust. With a straight camera, we gave the film to Bob Groon to develop. He brought back a blank film. Said it looked like it had been through the radar at Customs. Well, it stayed around for a bit, then it signed out. Then it sailed off. Uh, Questioner, uh, interviewer John says, did you check to see... Yeah, yeah, the next day, 
Bob Groon rang the Daily News, Times, police, see if anyone else had reported anything. People and groups said they saw something. Anyway, I know what I saw. Uh, let's see. John Lennon also told another magazine to try to take pictures of the UFO with both a Polaroid and a regular camera, but the film came out blank. Um, anyhow, so hopefully you know this, but John even mentioned the UFO incident in his song, Nobody Told Me. Now, it was recorded during the Double Fantasy Sessions in 1980. It was released on the album Milk and Honey, posthumous album. Uh, the song has the this phrase in it. It says, there's a UFO over New York, and I ain't too surprised. All righty, let's stay on John for a bit. Um, let's talk about his other place in New York. The one, the only, the Dakota Building. Absolutely beautiful building. It is incredible. Um, I was lucky enough when I went to New York to, to get a photo of like me looking up at the Dakota, our friend got, took a photo of me looking up at the Dakota, just in absolute awe and of the Dakota itself. It's a beautiful building. It's located on the corner of Central Park West and 72nd Street in New York. Like I said, it is absolutely just a gorgeous building. It's I've dreamt of living in it or at the very least visiting it since I was like 10. The Dakota was built in 1880 and it's had its Fair share of the paranormal. A lot of paranormal activity happens in this gorgeous, gorgeous building. Painters work in the building, reporting seeing the ghost of a girl with long blonde hair, dressed in clothes from an earlier time, bouncing a ball in one of the building's hallways. Later, a woman who was waiting for a friend in the building, in the building's foyer, saw the same blonde girl go into what she thought at that time was a room, but later discovered it was only a closet and she was not in there. After the death of actress Judy Holliday, who lived at the Dakota, Workers who were repairing her apartment felt like they were being watched, and several of, several of them spotted the ghostly figure of a young man with the face of a small child. That's a creepy ghost. Several of the Dakota residents over the years have reported objects moving on their own. Frederick and Suzanne Weinstein reported hearing footsteps and other noises in their apartment while their dining room furniture and rugs slid around on their own. One day... When Mr. Weinstein was returning home, he saw the lights of a chandelier glow in his living room, though their apartment had no chandelier. When he got upstairs, the light was gone, but he found bolts in the ceiling where a chandelier had once been installed that he had never noticed. Then, in the basement, a porter once summoned a tenant down there to show him that objects had been moving around on their own. While the men investigated, a heavy metal bar flew across the room and nearly struck the porter, landing at his feet. He reached down to pick it up, but found it weighed too much to lift. These reports go on and on and on and on. Repairmen, electricians, visitors, residents, anybody that goes down to the basement have reported seeing an apparition of a short man with a long nose and beard wearing wireframe glasses, a wig, and a frock coat. Some people think that the description matches Edward Clark, who actually built the Dakota, but never lived to see it completed. Why the hell is he walking around with a wig on? That's weird. Um, other fun facts about the Dakota. It, it stood in for the Bramford in Roman Polanski's 1968 film, Rosemary's Baby, which, if you don't know what that movie's about, I don't know. Should I spoil it? It's from 1968. Fuck it. It's about the devil. Devil baby. Then, when John Lennon lived there, he saw an apparition that he dubbed the crying lady ghost in the hallways. While living there, Yoko Ono actually showed John Lennon a photo of her great of her great grandfather, and when he saw it, John Lennon said, "That's me in a former life." To which Yoko said, "Don't say that. He was assassinated." Yeah. 
Now we get to the shitty part of this episode. In case you didn't know it, John Lennon was brutally murdered in front of the Dakota. Sadly, horrifically, you know, it changed the world of music forever, but his ghost has been seen at the Dakota a few times. Yoko Ono uh, said that she encountered John Lennon's ghost at the Dakota. She said that she saw him sitting at his white piano. He turned to her and said, don't be afraid, I'm still with you. Then in 1983, um, 1983, three years after Lennon's death, Joey Harrow, who's a musician, accompanied by a writer friend, Amanda Moores, said that they spotted John Lennon near the entrance of the Dakota. <clears throat> Pardon me, I'm going to sneeze. I'm not crying. Hold on. Okay, I'm back. They spotted John Lennon near the entrance of the Dakota where he was shot. Amanda said she was tempted she was uh, tempted to approach John Lennon and talk about it so you know like to talk to him but his, but his expression quote dissuaded her. Uh let's see Joey Harrow reported that when Lennon appeared there was an eerie light surrounding him. Now other witnesses have also seen John Lennon's ghost at the Dakota. Sometimes it's a full formed you know apparition like these two saw. Others say it's just a mist. A lot of people say that it's just a feeling. You get that feeling. I understand it's just a feeling. Sorry, I hate to burst everybody's bubble. But yes, when you go to the Dakota, if you're a Beatles fan, you get the feeling that John Lennon was there, is there, however you want to word it. Alrighty, let's uh, let's leave the Dakota behind, but let's stay with John pretty much through the rest of this episode. So, going back to John's first wife, Cynthia. She said that he told her if he passed away, he would contact her. Then in 1986, Cynthia Lennon reported that she thought that John had indeed sent her a sign because she said she found a dead jackdaw bird wrapped in an old newspaper dated 1956. She says that's important because that's the year the quarrymen were formed, which was John Lennon's first group. Um, They found that behind the fireplace in her home in Cumbria. John had told her if there was a life after death, he would prove it by sending her and Julian, their son, a feather as a sign. Now, Julian Lennon said that he too thinks that John has contacted him because he was a, he was in filming in Australia when an Aboriginal um, religious man gave him a white feather as a sign, as an offering. And he said that's what John told him, that he would give, he said he would always, you know, if you're looking for me, just look for a white feather. Then... Paul McCartney, who has got to be the one that is the least into the paranormal of any of the Beatles, says that he's had a few encounters with John Lennon's ghost. In fact, while I was writing this one, I actually found, and I can't find it again on Instagram, an interview with Paul McCartney. It looks like it's late 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, of Paul McCartney, and he's talking about, the, the, the interviewer must have asked him, you know, do you ever think of John or something to that effect. And he says, oh, I think of John Lennon all the time. He was, you know, one of my closest friends. As he's saying that, this weird blue haze or light or whatever, the guy, the cameraman said blue fire, but it looks more like a haze, goes across the, you know, the camera and then kind of slowly scrolls up past Paul McCartney. So the cameraman stops and says, hey, I'm sorry, but there was a blue light that just, a blue flame that just came through. And, And Paul went, no, that was John, you know, just letting you know that he's here. So he seems to have a good sense of humor about John visiting, but um, 
he seems to be the, like I said, he seems the most skeptical about the paranormal, but he does say he has had a few encounters with John Lennon's ghost. The biggest one, the coolest one in 1995, when Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr got back together for the Beatles anthology, they were singing John Lennon's song, Free as a Bird. And during a recording session, McCartney said he felt that John Lennon was in the studio with them. He said there was more than just a feeling. There were a lot of strange goings on in the studios, noises that shouldn't have been, and equipment doing all manner of weird things. In another encounter, during that photo, during a photo shoot for that single, the three Beatles, three surviving Beatles, George, Paul, and Ringo, were standing against a tree. They were about ready to take a photo when a white peacock wandered over from the neighboring farm. At the last minute... The white peacock comes out from behind the tree, and there's actually a very, very cool photo of the three Beatles with the white peacock. And Paul McCartney says, that was the spirit of John hanging around as they wrap the recording. He said uh, he said to uh, George Harrison and Ringo Starr, that's John, spooky, eh? Then, after the recording, um, Paul, George, and Ringo were listening to the single's B-side, and he said... There's another funny thing that happened that we know it was John. Uh, Paul McCartney explained that they had put a backwards spoof recording, like the things that I do at the end of every episode of backwards recording, uh, at the end of the single for a laugh to like kind of like bug all of the Beatles fanatics that always are looking for like, you know, there's meaning in this. There's, oh, I get it. I get what they're saying with that. So they're like, all right, well, jokingly, we'll put a little backwards masking at the end of this song. So they listen to the, uh, they, they just grab something. And they're listening to the finished single in the studio for the first time. And they say, the, Paul McCartney says, it gets to the end and they hear, John Lennon. He says, that is the only sample that he has heard the words John Lennon in. And they immediately said they knew it was John sending his approval. They immediately knew it. They just grabbed a random sample flipped it backwards, and it just happened to say John Lennon. Now, I'm going to play this sample for you on this edition because I think it's short enough that I don't think I'll be in trouble. Um, here we go. I'm going to play it again just in case because I think it's... Because I think it's amazing. That's incredible. Now, I think, hopefully, this is the correct one, where the guy actually flips it around backwards to show what it said. That's it. So, so they had a snippet of, of John saying, turned out nice again. When it's played backwards, this person says it says made by John Lennon. I only hear the words John Lennon. Something, something, John Lennon. Absolutely incredible. What are the freaking odds in that? Like, that is goosebump inducing that... The three surviving Beatles get together to finish up a John Lennon song. Grab that little snippet, and when it played backwards, it says John Lennon. 
Absolutely incredible. Turned out nice again. Nice again. Turned out nice again. Turned out nice again. John Lennon saying, turned out nice again. When you flipped it backwards, it says John Lennon. That to me is everything. Oh, hi, Rum. Hello. Hello. Welcome to this episode about my favorite Beatle, John Lennon. And the Beatles in general. Um, that to me is the perfect way to end this episode with, with John Lennon. Hope you guys like this one. Once again, like, like I said, this is the Beatles are my favorite band bar none, uh, them and they might be giants, my favorite bands ever. And what a different world it would have been if John Lennon wasn't brutally murdered. I truly, truly, truly believe that the Beatles were getting back together right when John died. And that's not, it's not just my belief. There's a lot of evidence of that, you know, that it's true, but, um, well, I hope you guys like this one. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another Beatlesque edition of Paranormal Almanac. Legacy on Dodgers.